Many people today want God, Christ, for what He can do for them. But they don't really see the Lord Jesus in relation to their own sin and their need for a Savior. They want Jesus to make them feel good, to get them out of a jam, to fix their marriage, to heal them, but not as their personal Lord to whom they should yield and serve. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, Jesus Walks on Water. Today, we begin as we look at Jesus' miracle of walking on water, part of our study in the Gospel of John. We find this miracle in chapter 6, but before we examine the importance of this, Pastor Carl begins with a quick review of the book of John. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to John chapter 6, John the 6th chapter. Unlike the other Gospels, this writer, the Apostle John, uses a running video. Uh, to, uh, unlike the other writers that use a running video, John doesn't. He takes a snapshot approach as he gives us the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. His approach in this gospel is totally different from the other gospel writers. And so as you read John's gospel, there's no genealogy, no manger scene, no boyhood, no temptation, no transfiguration, no Last Supper, no Garden of Gethsemane, no scribes, no lepers, no publicans, no demoniacs, not even a single parable in the whole gospel. Even the traditional accounts of Christ's birth, baptism, and temptation, and a multiplicity of miracles found in the other Gospels are not found in the Gospel according to John. Now, John puts together his material with a specific message in mind. While the other Gospels tend to record the events of the life of Christ, this Gospel records for us the meaning of those events. For example, all four Gospels record the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But only John's Gospel gives us the bread of life discourse that follows, where he interprets the meaning of that miracle for the people. In fact, John gives us a unique use of discourse all the way through his work. Only John includes the conversations that the Lord had with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the father of the sick son, with the paralytic at the pool, and with Peter there after the resurrection there on the beach. In addition, we find a number of discourses that Christ has with his enemies, with those who opposed him. And of course, we also have unique to this gospel the teaching that we call the upper room discourse, where we find not only his instruction to his disciples, but the high priestly prayer. Now, I told you that very often scholars will try to make a harmony of the four Gospels. In fact, a number of years ago, I read a book called The Harmony of the Gospels. And in it, they took all four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and gathered all the verses together and tried to put them, weld them together into one large account. But when you try to do that, you find it's kind of like trying to fit a size 7 foot into a size 4 shoe. It's just very, very difficult. In fact, we don't really need a harmony of the Gospels. What we need is a disharmony of the Gospels. Oh, understand, I don't believe there's a single contradiction anywhere in the Gospels. They perfectly complement one another. But understand, had God wanted to give us one Gospel, He would have. 
No, he gives us four Gospels. Now, you know I'm not using the term Gospel in terms of death, burial, and resurrection. There's only one Gospel in that sense. But we use the term Gospel also loosely just to refer to good news. And so these are called, this is called the good news. And in inspiring four different writers, God the Holy Spirit gave us four different perspectives. Remember, the Gospel according to Matthew was written to the religious man, to the Jews of his day. The Jews had a dead formalism of sorts. And so Matthew, as a converted Jew and tax gatherer, he gets saved and he basically describes what a new birth can do for a person. In James's word, how one can have pure and undefiled religion. And so Matthew paints for the Jewish people how to have a vital living pulsating relationship with God as the Old Testament prophets had promised in this new covenant. And so true Christianity is about a person. It's not a, just a set of do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship with the living God. And so he presents Jesus Christ as Christ the King, the Son of David. And he documents his genealogy not back to Adam, as does Luke, but he documents his genealogy all the way back to Abraham to show the Jews that he is indeed the true Messiah, the progenitor that would bring salvation to the world. And so he writes, in essence, to the religious man. You could write, I suppose, over Gospels, Matthew, Behold your king. Now, when you come to the second gospel, Mark's gospel, it was not written for the Jew, but for the Roman. Not for the religious man, but for the strong man. The Roman grew up in a world that for hundreds of years had basically ascribed to Caesars as literally being gods, as sovereign rulers of the world. And so in a very brief, blunt, pertinent, pithy style, Mark presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the sovereign ruler of the world. And so he addresses the strong man, and he presents Jesus not as the king, but as the sovereign king who laid aside his robes and became the servant of Jehovah. And so the key verse, really, the thematic verse in the gospel according to Matthew is Mark, uh, Mark, is Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You could write over Mark's gospel, behold your servant. Now, when you come to Luke's gospel, he's writing with an entirely different audience in mind. Matthew with the religious man, the Jew, Mark with the strong man, the Roman, but Luke with the Gentile. And he writes to the intellectual man of the day. He uses the most precise, articulate Greek found anywhere in all of the New Testament. The Greek man, in essence, was the thinking man of his day. For four centuries, he had put on the horizon some of the most brilliant, sinalizing minds the world had ever known. Men like Plato, Aristotle, Homer, Euripides, Sophocles, so many others. And they were always in search of the utopus man, of the perfect man. So the Greeks made their gods, in essence, in the likeness of men. But they never really found the utopist man. Even there on Mars Hill, when Paul speaks to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, there was, if you remember, a statue to an unknown god, still looking, still searching, still yearning for that perfect man. And of course, Paul tells them, 
that the unknown God is really a known God, and he is a perfect God, and his name is Jesus. And so Luke traces the genealogy of the Son of Man, not back to Abraham, because he's not trying to prove that he's the Messiah, but he traces him all the way back to Adam through Mary's lineage. And so the gospel according to Luke presents the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect divine man, the savior of the world. You could write over his gospel, behold, the perfect man. Now, when we come to John's gospel, which we're studying this morning, he is writing for the searching man. He is writing to the skeptical man. Remember, when you come to the end, he writes many other signs. Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, and that in believing, you might find life in his name. And so when he comes to the end of his gospel, he adds that if everything Jesus did were written down, even the world itself could not contain the books in which they could be written. And so John selectively draws the material that he does to irrefutably reveal to the skeptic that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. More than any other gospel writer, he proves the deity of Christ. But in the process, his humanity is not lost. Only John tells us of that trip to Samaria where he sits down next to a well and he is weary and hot and thirsty. Only John shows his humanity in describing Christ there at the funeral of Lazarus where he wept. And so John pulls out the rug on the skeptic and he gives, takes away every reason why he can't believe and gives him every reason to believe that he might flee to Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, we're here this morning in the sixth chapter. And again, if you have the big picture of any book of the Bible, the component parts take on a lot more meaning. So remember the big picture of this gospel. It divides into three principal sections. Chapters 1 through 12, the section we're in this morning, deals with the signs of God's Son. And here he introduces us to Jesus Christ as being God in human flesh. And to do so, he gives us seven signs seven miracles that the Lord did to show that he is indeed God in human flesh. And in this section, we find the Lord under careful scrutiny by his enemies, and it takes place over the course of a few years. Now, when we come to chapters 13 through 17, we find the secrets of God's Son, what we call the upper room discourse and the high priestly prayer. Chapters 1 through 12 really show us how to establish a relationship with God, certainly has application for the believer. But chapters 13 through 17 show once you've established that relationship, how do you grow in it? You could write over those chapters for believers only because that's really the focus, not the lost man, but the saved man. And of course, those chapters take place in the course of just a few hours. When we come to the third section, we come to the supremacy of God's Son. And we find in chapters 18 through 20 a dramatic presentation of his passion and a detailed account of his resurrection appearances. We find his victory over sin and death, and this section takes place in the course of a few weeks. Now remember, there are three words we've talked about in the New Testament that are used to describe miracles. There's the word dunamos, 
typically translated miracle, or if you're using old English, powers. We get our English word dynamite directly from it. And that word is used in the New Testament to describe the spiritual energy that it took to bring about a miracle. Then there's the word taras. It's typically translated wonders in the New Testament. It emphasizes the character of the miracle, the awe that it instills upon those who would see it or those who would read of it. But then there's the third word that John principally uses, and it's the Greek word semeon. It's translated signs. When he uses that, he's speaking of a miracle, but of a miracle with a message. The Greek word emphasizes primarily the message behind the miracle, the significance, the value of the miracle. Now remember, he's writing this gospel with a strategy. Seven miracles to show us, one, that he is the Christ, that you might believe, and then having believed that you might experience life in his name. And so when I preach these seven miracles, I'm preaching to some, that they might believe, that they might be born again. You may not know what that is yet. Stick around, you'll find out. It's important. Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. But for most of us who've experienced that, that we might find life in his name. And so these seven miracles are not directed simply to the lost, but also to the saved, that we might find life in his name. Turn back to John 2 for a second. The first miracle we looked at, just to review for a moment, we saw Jesus turn the water into the wine. And we learn from that miracle that Jesus Christ is the answer to man's disappointments. The wines of this world will run out. But the joy that he gives is fresh and full and free. The second miracle, turn over to chapter 4, was the healing of the nobleman's son. The nobleman, if you remember, had initially difficulty in believing in Jesus. And we learned from this miracle that not only is the Lord the answer to man's disappointments, but he is the answer to man's doubts. And then in the third miracle, over in chapter 5, we saw the healing of the paralytic there at the pool of Bethesda. And in that miracle, we saw that Jesus Christ is the answer to man's disabilities, how God will help the helpless. And then last time, here in the beginning of chapter 6, we studied the fourth sign or miracle that Jesus performed as he fed the 5,000. And we saw from that miracle that he is the answer to man's deficiencies. We saw that when we are willing to give to the Lord Jesus what he has entrusted to us, he can multiply it, he can bless it, he can use it supernaturally for his honor and glory. Now, there's more to be said on that miracle. There's a whole discourse that follows here in the longest chapter of the Gospel of John. But before we get to that discourse, they have to get to the other side of the lake to where the discourse is given. And in the process, he's going to do another miracle, the fifth miracle, which is really a triple miracle wrapped into one. And so we're going to learn in this miracle that Jesus is God's answer to man's despair. Well, let's begin by reading our passage. You say, boy, this took you forever to get there, preacher. Well, follow along. John 6, verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, 
They started to cross the sea to Capernaum, and it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When, therefore, they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now remember the immediate context. The first 15 miracles, uh, first 15 verses explain the miracle of feeding 20,000 people. Verses 16 to 21 is a sequel to that miracle. Now prior to the feeding of the 20,000, the other gospels tell us that all day long Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God and had been doing all kinds of miracles. He made the blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb speak, he healed their palsies, he cast out demons. At the end of the day, it's late, the sun is going down, the people are tired, Jesus is fearful, they'll faint along the way if they don't have food. And so he does this miracle of feeding 5,000. The crowd is absolutely astounded by what he does. And they respond, notice in verse 14, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. They see this incredible miracle, and they say, yes, this is of a truth, the truth that Moses wrote about. He is not just a prophet. He is the prophet to come into the world. See, God centuries before, through Moses, that great man of God, as he led the Jewish people, said this in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And then God says in verse 18 of that chapter, thus saith the Lord, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses said a prophet's coming. Not just any old prophet, the prophet. And what you do with him is going to determine what God will do with you. He'll speak in my name, and I myself will require it of the person who hears him or hears about him as to what he will do. And so remember, the Old Testament predicted that when Messiah comes, he will fill three offices. The office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. And in calling the Lord Jesus a prophet, because he is, but he's more than a prophet, he is the prophet, he is the prophet of prophets, he is God in human flesh. That's the picture the Jews in the Old Testament had of Messiah. A baby is going to be born, a child will be with us, Isaiah wrote, and this child's name shall be called Mighty God. And so he will be the prophet. And of course... Moses predicted that when he came, he would speak with absolute authority. And the Jews understood, many of them, that Jesus was indeed this prophet. Peter spoke, Acts 3, verses 19 to 24. He quotes these very verses from the Old Testament. He says, these speak of Jesus. And so the folks, they believe, ah, he's the prophet. So notice what they say in verse 15, or what they do. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They want to make him king. 
But he has no interest in being the kind of king that they want to make him. Now, of course, the people's assessment that he is the prophet was correct, and therefore he would fulfill the office of king. The only problem was the role that they wanted him to play was incorrect. And their role was wrong for a number of, the, that they wanted him to play was, was incorrect for a number of reasons. But think your way through this for just a second. You can see how they might have come to this conclusion. If he's the prophet, then he must be Israel's king. And if he's like Moses, what did Moses do? Moses was used supernaturally by God through those great signs and wonders and miracles to deliver the people out of Egyptian bondage. In many ways, he was kind of like a king. He ruled over some two million people, and he delivered them out of Egypt. And so, if he is like my servant Moses, if he is the king, then no doubt he is going to deliver us from the servitude of Rome. But their concept of a kingdom was secular, it was material, it was not spiritual. And the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus when he spoke of the kingdom of God, he said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You need a birth from above if you're ever going to be a part of God's kingdom. And he told Nicodemus that that came through his death and resurrection. And so they did not want a prophet that would simply teach them the ways of God, but they wanted a prophet who would deliver them from the oppression of Rome. They didn't like the Roman yoke. The Jewish people for centuries had been the superpower of the world. But since the time of Nebuchadnezzar, when they entered the time of the Gentiles, as the prophet Daniel speaks of, they've been under the oppression of the nations of this world. And the Bible says they'll continue in that mode until Messiah comes a second time. And so they knew that his kingdom, they felt, would come with great power. And indeed, they'd seen the credentials. Look what he had done that day. It was absolutely amazing. Not to mention that Isaiah said, ultimately, Messiah will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But that's not until his second return. And so Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem like Flint. He sets himself upon going to Jerusalem to the cross, not to wield the spear, not by beating the enemy in siege warfare, not by bringing judgment upon them, but by taking the spear and by bearing our judgment. And so the prospect of making him king is just another temptation. It reminded me this week as I was reading in 1 Samuel chapter 4, I couldn't help but associate these two passages and put them together because these people wanted him as king for what he could do for them. They kind of viewed him as a divine genie of sorts. If they could just get him to be their man, then they could use him for any purposes that they needed. But they had it all backwards. Instead of their serving him and bowing down and worshiping him, they want to use him. And it reminded me of the Jewish people in that time in their history when they had fallen into idolatry and they were living in immorality and, and God was judging them and they had forgotten and forsaken the Lord and, and a lot of their soldiers on one day died. So they went to the priest, Eli, who had two sons who served as priests, Hophni and Phinehas, who are wicked, evil men. 
And they thought, you know, if we can just get the Ark of the Covenant. You know what the Ark of the Covenant was? It was an object that basically about the size of this pulpit turned sideways. And it sat in the section of the temple known as the Holy of Holies, first in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And it was there that God's presence would come. And they thought, you know, if we can just get this good luck charm with us, then we're going to have great victory. And so they get the ark from these wicked priests. And it happened, the Bible says, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, that all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe is us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. And so they go to war. The Philistines against Israel and the Jewish people get whooped. 30,000 men fall in one day. You see, the problem was they thought they could use God like a good luck charm. But nobody uses God, not now, not then, not in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, people haven't changed a whole lot today, as we will see here in John chapter 6. Many people today want God, Christ, for what he can do for them. But they don't really see the Lord Jesus in relation to their own sin and their need for a Savior. They want Jesus to make them feel good, to get them out of a jam, to fix their marriage, to heal them, but not as their personal Lord to whom they should yield and serve. And so these were thrill-seekers. They basked in the benefits of Christ's miracle, but they despised as Jesus will show his cross. But he didn't come, remember, for your whims, for your fancies, for your delights. He came for your sin. Now, lest we rag on non-Christians who typically want God for what he can do for them, I think sometimes as Christian people, we are guilty of the same. Oh, we want the Lord to comfort us in our sorrow. We need his strength when we're going through hardship and difficulty. And we need his peace in the midst of turmoil. And when we get sick, I mean deathly sick, we're crying out to him. But then when those problems begin to dissipate and the Lord meets those needs our walk with him begins to change. You know, you got cancer, and the doctor says, 50-50 chance you're going to live. Oh, God, help me. You're spending time with the Lord every day. You're in his word. You're, you're fellowshipping with his people. You're walking as close to him as you know you can do. And then the healing comes, and six months later, you know, the intensity just kind of changes. So God wants to teach us through this miracle through this miracle that he does for his disciples, that what he does in the midst of great turmoil, he wants us to take those lessons that he teaches us that we might walk through the everyday events of life. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 016. 
Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.